My hope is in the Lord, who gave himself for me. Hi, I'm John Hemminghouse, speaking for the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church near Milanville, Pennsylvania. Today, as we take another look at the life of Christ as described in the Bible, Pastor Jones plans to examine two more situations where some individuals found fault with Jesus. This group of religious leaders was far more negative towards Jesus than the last group was. In fact, you'll see that these people actually thought they were more moral than Christ himself. Pastor has a lot to say about this subject, so we better get right at it. I hope you'll stay tuned and listen to the arguments that some in Jesus' day were making as they thought themselves to be more moral than the Son of God. Well, if you have a Bible that you can uh, get to, I'm going to be looking this morning at Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 to 14. And a couple weeks ago, we were talking about the fact that Satan is always slandering God and his character. We saw how Satan can actually get you to believe the lie that you as a human being are somehow more righteous than he is, than than God is. And uh, last time we discussed, um, it was actually a couple weeks ago, we discussed this question that came up with some of the people that were actually probably warm toward Christ and potential followers, and that were the disciples of John the Baptist. And they were wondering uh, why Jesus and his disciples didn't fast when they fasted, and even the disciples of the Pharisees fasted as well. And so there was some confusion, and, and, and Jesus addressed that issue and the fact that um, it wasn't appropriate uh, for him and his disciples to fast. Uh, the reason you fast is to get closer to God, and the disciples were walking with God. And so it was kind of hard for them to have to fast to get closer. They, um, certainly, he said when, we, when he left them that they would, uh, they would fast at that point. So, um, uh, but that was a, a criticism that, that came up, and we ta- dealt with that a couple of weeks back. And, and now we're coming to another uh, set of criticisms, actually two of them, that will take place in Matthew chapter 12, the first 14 verses. And the first one is uh, the criticism of Jesus' disciples. And, of course, that's really a way at getting at Jesus himself. And then the second criticism is of Jesus himself in the fact that he would have the audacity to heal on the Sabbath day. And so both of these criticisms are going to be addressed in the verses that we have. And let me just say as an overall general principle that it is the height of human arrogance to think that you are more righteous than God is. You know, we get a lot of people that think that way today. They think, well, I, because I don't eat meat, you know, I'm, I'm more righteous than the God of the Bible. Really? You really think you know more about God's creation. You care more about the creation that God has than the one who put it there in the first place. That's that's pretty pretty arrogant. Um, there are a lot of people that think, well, we've got a better standard of morality today. Again, really? You think your standard of morality is better than God's and what's in the Scripture? Uh, I, just, uh, uh, I just beg you to think a little bit deeper on that one and uh, come to the place where you realize that no, the God of the Bible who created you, created this world and all that's in it, he has every right to establish the moral code for the world which he created. And we'd be a whole lot wiser to follow his moral standards, which really get down to heart issues more than some of our little pet peeves that people get into and so foolishly lead them down the wrong road. So before we get started, let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Father, we need help. As we look into your word, give us your grace and and wisdom. May your spirit be our teacher through your word. We thank you for what we can learn today, and we ask that we would grab onto this and help folks to listen with an open heart, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, let's notice this criticism of Jesus' disciples in the first eight verses. I'll start with verses 1 and 2 of Matthew chapter 12. It says, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to eat, uh, pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now, this criticism of Jesus' disciples is obviously a way of trying to get at Jesus himself. And let me just say this, when your interpretation of God's law, or even God's word, becomes more important than the genuine needs of your fellow man, you got something out of whack there. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm privileged to drive uh, for a volunteer ambulance and don't make too much out of it. I, I only drive um, uh, one shift a week, and that's from midnight to 6 a.m. on Monday evenings, and so I don't get very many calls. But in recent days, uh, there was a uh, a young mother in the area, and she had started hemorrhage shortly after giving birth. And so um, we get called in on that situation. And uh, now I, uh, I I got three things going through my mind that I'm all trying to balance. Number one is not to drive in such a way as to throw the people who are trying to help her in the back um, off balance and, and to hinder what they're trying to do. A second thing I'm trying to do is get her to the hospital as soon as possible. And, of course, the third thing is I've got to make sure that we're safe as we're as we're going. I've got to drive responsibly. Now again, I'm driving in the middle of the night, thankfully, so I'm uh, I'm not thinking that there's a lot of people out, and there weren't a lot of people out on the roads that night um, at, at that time. They're not children out. Um, there are deer. You got to watch for them. But I will say this: that as I'm trying to get that uh, young mom to the hospital, uh, I'm not thinking about the speed limit at that point. Uh, you know, what's the point behind the speed limit law? It's it's to save lives. And if I'm in a 35-mile-an-hour zone and I need to go uh, quite a bit faster than that, if I'm paying attention and... Um, and if I can, if I am uh, uh, being wise in how I'm handling that vehicle, um, I will tell you that that uh, uh, I'm well within my rights as a ambulance driver. Again, carefully, cautiously, always thinking about uh, could I uh, be endangering someone else. But if I'm if I'm in a spot where it's open, I can see, and um, I can go beyond that speed limit. That is um, actually the wisest thing to do when when someone is in, in a serious situation. Now, the place of this criticism is the grain fields, and it should be a place, if you think about it, of joy and provision. Um, and and God is, is uh, you know, given the grain, and how the Jewish system worked, because some of you may think, well, the disciples are stealing here. They're not. In uh, the Jewish system, you were specifically under their laws, given the right, if you're walking through a grain field or an orchard or something like that, to, to grab whatever you would like off the tree or off the vine, you are not allowed to put it in any kind of a dish to take it with you. Now, keep in mind that, that um, in the ancient world, there's, there's not the constant access to restaurants and things like we have. And so there would be times when people would be very much uh, hungry and in need of something. And so the Lord had this law that, that you could eat what you needed as you're going through somebody's field or their vineyard, but you can't take anything with you. At that point, you would be stealing. So uh, just put it in a dish, say, to take it home, that would be wrong. So the disciples are well within their rights, uh, and there would be no question about that, for them to uh, pluck the heads of grain, uh, whatever grain it was, whether it's wheat or something else, and to eat them. So what was the big deal? Well, 
uh, the timing was a big deal, and that is that it was on a it was on a Sabbath, and so as the Pharisees looked at this, they're harvesting on the Sabbath because they're pulling those heads off the grain, and then they're working because they're knocking the hulls off. They're kind of shucking it in their hands again, whether it be corn or something else, or taking the the hardened exterior off, and so then they're and then they're eating it. So so don't you think they're stretching it just a little bit here? Um, by the way, have you ever noticed when it comes to timing of criticism and timing of of irritating things that sometimes those spiritual battles happen when you should be enjoying God? Here these guys are in a grain field. They're walking through. It's the Sabbath. They're hungry. Uh, they're grabbing something to eat well within their rights. And now you got somebody coming along and complaining. Oh, you don't have a right to do that. It's on the Sabbath day. Well, you know, it's funny. Maybe Maybe you've had this experience too. That when you're actually trying to serve the Lord and you're wanting to worship Him, and it's, uh, say, the Sunday, which is when we normally come together to worship, and have you ever noticed all the things that go wrong? Uh, Maybe the kid throws up, or they can't stop arguing, or maybe you and your your spouse get into unusual arguments, and, and you're rushing around, and you're trying to get ready on time, and someone's always holding everything up, and, and uh, why do you think this is so? Let me give you a passage of scripture that I think is interesting along that same line. It's talking about a lady uh, by the name of Hannah, and she had a um, rival uh, back in her day, and this was when polygamy was going on, which was a horrible thing. The Bible does not put a good spin on it, but it, it records accurately that it happened. And so here this woman is, and she has a, a, a rival wife, and it says this, So it was year by year when she, Hannah, went up to the house of the Lord that she, the other woman, her name was Peninnah, provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. Now, I want to read that again. I want you to listen to see if there's a certain timing when this would happen. So it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. It's interesting, is it not, that the very time when it should be an exciting time is one of the great holidays in Israel. They would go up to the the uh, tabernacle. They would spend about a week up there. Uh, they'd have all kinds of feasting, and you get to see people you hadn't seen maybe in a year or or, or almost a year. Uh, a lot of time of celebration and joy, and yet that was the very time when this woman Peninnah would would really get uh, irritating to Hannah. And would really be very cruel to her. And try to, really, Satan was using it, I'm convinced, to try to turn a blessing, a time of blessing, into a time of sadness and sorrow. Uh, Also, again, this criticism that somehow the disciples are working and Jesus is allowing the disciples to work. Well, um, again, I, I, I think it's we should see by just reading it now some 2,000 years later, that's really stretching the Sabbath command to try to make it sound like you're pulling heads of grain off and putting them in your mouth after shucking off the outside. That's somehow working on the Sabbath. And so um, Jesus has an answer for him. And the first thing, um, he's going to give some biblical examples. He says in verse 3, But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, uh, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. And by the way, I was just reading that in my devotions this morning in the book of Leviticus, that that you're not supposed to, uh, no one beyond the priests themselves uh, were s- supposed to eat the showbread. 
And, um, and so why was there an exception made? Well, because David was in a pretty bad spot and he was hungry and the priest made a right decision. He said, you know what? Um, I, I know what the ceremonial law says, but the reality is this man needs something to eat. And so what, what we call that is the, the higher law. The idea is, just like with my ambulance duty, um, there's a higher law than the speed limit law, and that is the law that I need to try to save, uh, help save this woman's life, be a part of that. And if, the, if getting to the hospital is necessary for her to have the best chance of, of making it, then I need to do that part, do my part. Now, I, I have friends in, in, uh, who are in law enforcement. And let's say I'm I'm allowed to ride. Probably wouldn't be today, but I, let's say I'm allowed to ride. Allowed to ride with one of the uh, troopers, and and uh, who's a friend of mine. And all of a sudden, he gets a call over the radio, and there's a robbery in progress. Uh, the are the uh, um, person is assumed to be armed and dangerous, and it's about ten miles from us. And now the trooper starts to accelerate his car, starts to move very quickly to try to get to that scene, to try to protect a family and. Uh, and I'm sitting there, and I'm all of a sudden, I, can you imagine me saying, well, why are you going? You're going uh, over 40 miles an hour in a 35-mile-an-hour zone. Um, why aren't you keeping the law? Well, I've got to get to the accident scene, I, this robbery scene. And I say, well, can't you trust God to, to, um, to keep that thing uh, in, in safety until you get there? You don't have to violate the And the reality is there's a higher law, and I think all of us would understand that. He, Jesus gave a second example. He says, or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Now, that's kind of interesting. He says, now, the priests themselves are actually above the law. What does he mean by that? Well, on the Sabbath day, many people are going to come and worship the Lord in the temple. It makes all kinds of sense. And what are they going to do? Well, many of them are going to bring sacrifices. Somebody has to be there to receive the sacrifice, to to slay the animal, to to take the blood, put it where it needs to go. All of these things were happening routinely on the Sabbath day. And Jesus is saying, really, some people are above the law because of their position. They have to do something. Let me give you another example, because I know that sounds, it may sound a little bit hard to us, because we as Americans, we understand, hey, you know, whether it be our president, whether it be our tax collector, whether it be ourselves, we're, we're all under the law. And, there's, there, and there's, certainly there's truth in that. What Jesus is talking about is some laws um, you're not under, just because of your position. Uh, exam, example would be, uh, you're, you know, I'm a parent, many of you are parents, you, uh, you're not under the laws of the school that you send your children to. Um, and the teachers aren't under every law either. Imagine a, a teacher is uh, summoned by the principal to step out into the hall and uh, to have a brief conversation. Maybe it's a student that they're concerned about or whatever it is, but the teacher, uh, the principal sticks his head in the room and says, could you step out, Miss So-and-so? And, and so she steps out in the hall, talks to the principal. Can you imagine a student walking by and saying, hey, do you guys have passes to be out here in the hall? Um, did you get permission? And who'd you get that permission from? Well, it doesn't make any sense, does it? Um, you, you're not under that law. Uh, the, the reality is is that when you're in certain positions, again, a police officer is a great example of this. He's not under the law of, of keeping the speed limit if he's trying to get to a spot where there's a dangerous situation going on. There's a higher law. Now, Jesus then applies these truths in verses 6 to 8. 
He says, yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. So what's he saying? He's saying, look, um, I'm above the Sabbath law. And my ministry is above the Sabbath law. Now, how would that be so? Well, where did the Sabbath law originate? Well, you'd have to go all the way back to the front of your Bible, to Genesis chapter 2. And in the first three verses of that chapter, we have the implementation of the Sabbath. Now, let me just explain, if you're turning there, that Sabbath, don't think Sunday. Sabbath is Saturday. Uh, The Jewish people are right to call their Saturday Sabbath. That is correct. Matter of fact, if you look on a calendar, Sunday is the first day of the week. That's the way we call it commonly the weekend today because of our culture where we tend to uh, 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 have Sunday as a, as a day of, of rest and, and worship because, uh, of again, the majority of Christians uh, in the population uh, as in the founding era of the United States. And so um, we, we tend to look at that as kind of the weekend, and, and then the work week starts on Monday. But the reality is, is that the Sabbath was the seventh day, which is Saturday. Sunday is the first day of the week. And the reason why we as Christians worship on the first day of the week instead of on Saturday is because Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. And so we tend to worship on that day. It's not universal. All Christians don't do that, but, but the majority of us do, and I think we have biblical reason to do that. But now the Sabbath then was implemented in Genesis chapter 2, where it says, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, which again is Saturday, God ended his work which he had done. He rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which he had created and made. Then you find later in the book of Exodus that God says that, um, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy, for in six days the Lord made heaven and the earth and rested the seventh day. So that's the, that's the um, origin of the Sabbath of rest. So the Sabbath, the point of it, was to be a time of rest and relaxation, a time when you could worship God and not have to worry. But what's interesting as well is who was the creator then who rested on the seventh day? And many of you might know this, but some of you might not. In the the Gospel of John, chapter 1, um, the Apostle John has a very interesting thing to say about this. It's, it starts John chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 3. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, we know from verse 14 and, uh, uh, that the Word is speaking of Jesus Christ. Okay, So let me put that back in so you understand what he's saying. In the beginning was Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ was with God, and Jesus Christ was God. Now, there's, this is verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, through Jesus Christ. And without Jesus Christ, nothing was made that was made. Now think about this. It's saying that Jesus Christ actually was the one who did the creating. Obviously, he's working with with the Father, the Holy Spirit, but he's actually the agent of creation. If that is so, isn't it interesting that Jesus Christ is the originator of the rest on the seventh day and the Sabbath? And so isn't it kind of ironic that here are some religious leaders who have the audacity to tell Jesus Christ, who originated the Sabbath, how the Sabbath is supposed to be run. 
This is what I'm talking about when I'm saying that it is just the height of human arrogance to think you are more righteous than God. That's exactly what these people are doing. That's what they're thinking. So we see that Jesus is saying, look, I'm above the Sabbath law. (laughs) And secondly, this whole critical attitude that these people had was such an abomination to God. He says this in verse 7, But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. And then he makes this statement in verse 8, For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now let me back up for just a second, and I want you to consider what Jesus is saying. He says, If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. God speaking this, by the way. You would not have condemned the guiltless. What's he talking about? Well, it was kind of interesting because back in chapter 9 of, of, of Matthew, in verse 13, Jesus was, was talking with um, the, the Pharisees. They were, they'd been critical, again, of the fact that he would eat with publicans and sinners, that he would hang around with people who were, in their minds, uh, not good enough. And Jesus then said this in in chapter 9 of Matthew, verse 13, But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He said, go and learn what this means. And then in chapter 12, he comes back and says, If you had done it, if you had gone back and learned what it means, you would not have condemned the guiltless. So, as I was studying for this message, I was thinking to myself, You know what? I want to go back and learn what that statement means. And it comes out of the book of Hosea. Uh, chapter 6. Now, I'm going to back up to chapter 4 so you get the context. And if you're flipping there, uh, I'll I'll explain a couple things while you're doing that. The first three chapters of the book of of Hosea are about the prophet himself. And God had led him to marry a woman. Her name was Gomer, of all things. Can you imagine? Um, Hopefully it sounded better in Hebrew. But in our English translation, her name is Gomer. And she, um, she was evidently a beautiful woman, but she was an unfaithful woman. And she became uh, a woman who ran, started running around on her husband, Hosea, the prophet, and uh, became known as the town prostitute, involved in all kinds of immorality. And so the first three chapters are the saga of what Hosea was going through. When you get to chapter 4, God begins to use his prophet's um, experiences, very sad experiences, to try to illustrate to the nation at large, how upset the Lord was of their unfaithfulness to, uh, to him, which he often compares in the scripture to adultery. And so I'm going to read the first few verses of chapter 4. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, for the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth or mercy. Now the word mercy there um, is an interesting word, and it means uh, steadfast or loyal love. So he says, there is no truth or mercy or the fruits of the steadfast and loyal love or knowledge of God in the land. By swearing and lying and killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break all restraint with bloodshed upon bloodshed. Therefore the land will mourn and everyone who dwells there will waste away with the beast of the field and the birds of the air. Even the fish of the sea will be taken away. So he's seeing this great punishment and judgment coming on the land because it's been become unfaithful to me. And as they turn their back on God and his morality, and by the way, we can learn the same lesson in this country today. When we turn our back on our God and his standards of morality, what ends up is a very wicked, deviant, and violent society. 
in which people get chewed up and spit out. You know, there's talk today about human trafficking, and it's a good thing that it's being brought up. But the reason, but the reason for human trafficking is because we have thrown away God's laws of marriage. Instead of saying that, you know, sex is to be reserved for a man and his wife in the bonds of marriage, and that's a male and a female, instead of going by what God has, has said, we've felt we can, we've got a better standard. We can go on our own way. We can do our own thing. And the result is a very deviant and violent society where, where right and wrong become blurred. Now, I'm skipping to chapter 5 because it's rather interesting the response that the people had to the indictment of God and to the obvious wrong direction their nation was headed in. So some of them begin to think about the fact, well, maybe we better try to do something to placate our God in all of this. So it says in chapter 5 and verse 6, With their flocks and herds they go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church. Now, back to the message. Isn't that interesting? Now, what does he mean when he says, that with their flocks and herds, they go to seek the Lord? Well, the idea is those animals were used for sacrifice. And so the people were thinking, well, if we offer a few more sacrifices, maybe that'll make God um, uh, appeased so he won't um, punish us for the things that he doesn't like in our lives. And what the prophet is saying, that's not going to work. That your uh, your desire to just appease God without repentance from your sin isn't going to work. So now I'm skipping to chapter 6. And the first six verses of, 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 of Hosea 6 say this. Come and let us return to the Lord. For he is torn, but he will heal us. He is stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. Let us know. Let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth. O Ephraim, what shall I do to you? O Judah, what shall I do to you? Your faithfulness is like a morning cloud, and the early dew, and like the early dew it goes away. See what God is saying? He's saying your morality has collapsed. You're like a fog that burns off. Your morality is burned off. You're they're no longer living a godly uh, lifestyles. And it's like the dew that fades away. It's gone. Therefore, God says, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And your judgments are the light that goeth, that goes forth. So God is saying, I'm, I'm warning you strongly, sternly of what's going to happen to you if you don't turn around. Boy, if this isn't uh, something that we need to hear as a people today. But then listen to what God says. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice. This is what Jesus was quoting. And that word mercy, again, is the idea of steadfast love, loving God faithfully and, and loyally, and then loving your fellow man as a result of that. That's what God says he wants. I desire mercy, this steadfast love, and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. And what Jesus was trying to point out then to these religious leaders is they were in the same boat. They were thinking that by their strict observance of these different laws, that somehow that was going to make them righteous before God. And then our Lord said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. 
I'm the one that created it. That's his title. When he says, I'm the son of the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath, that's his title for God. That's his title as deity. It's in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. It was a title that was used of the Messiah. And I don't think it was lost on these men. And so his application, he's saying this, I'm above the Sabbath law. And aren't you glad about that? Aren't you glad that God doesn't take uh, a day off? You know, you, you pray to him and he says, oh, sorry, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's the Sabbath. I'm, I'm taking a day off today. I can't answer your prayer. No, Jesus said, I'm above that. And so your criticism is wrong on several fronts. It's wrong on the fact that you're emphasizing uh, the sacrificial living as if it's somehow more righteous that you, that you wouldn't uh, eat on the Sabbath when you're walking right through a grain field, trying to make it so hard on man. Matter of fact, in, in one of the other passages that deals with this same um, incident, one of the other gospel writers records Jesus as saying, the Sabbath was made uh, uh, for man. The Sabbath is made to be a blessing to us, not man for the Sabbath. It's not that we have to twist around and make it difficult. Again, Satan trying to make a blessing into a curse. Well, they went on from there to a synagogue. Again, it's the Sabbath, so Jesus is going to be in the synagogue. He's going to worship the Lord. And this is where he runs into a personal criticism this time. But it's not open. So verse 9, chapter 12. Now when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath that they might accuse him? So again, we notice the, law, the location of this uh, of incident, and that is in the synagogue itself. It's a place of worship, a place that Jesus frequented on every Sabbath. And then you'll notice the, the person in need of help, which unfortunately in the religious uh, enemies of Jesus and their, the, those religious leaders' minds, he's of very little importance. Uh, but he's in need of help. He's had a withered hand. He's, uh, uh, and if you can imagine, uh, you've probably some of you have seen this, where a man has a hand that, uh, or a woman does, that's curled up and, and is useless. And now the question um, that's really intended for evil, because because Matthew, the writer of this gospel, tells us they they asked him this that they might accuse him, and that is. Um, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So it's very possible that they even helped this guy get there to try to use him to um, get at Jesus, to, to criticize him. So you'll notice that the people that are questioning Jesus, who are identified, by the way, as by, by the gospel writer Luke in his account of this, as scribes and Pharisees, that is, the religious leaders, they're not asking this to learn anything. They're really asking this to accuse Jesus. And Luke also adds, by the way, that Jesus knew their thoughts. He knew what was going on, why they were doing this. And then Jesus uh, asked them a couple questions that will apply God's law and some reason to, uh, to answer them. So then he said to them, this is Jesus speaking in verse 11, What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath day, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? That's an interesting question. He says, okay, um, what about if you only had one sheep and, and that sheep falls into a pit and it's going to die in that pit if you leave it there? You're going to pull it out on the Sabbath? And then he asks another question of how much more of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Now, that question might offend some of uh, the most extreme animal rights people. I don't know if you realize this, but there is uh, there are some people on, in the animal rights movement 
much of it's just craziness, but um, who have made statements, uh, and I can't get the quote exact, but I can get the, the general idea where this woman who was the head of the whole organization, I think it was PETA, she said that a dog is a pig is a boy. She's equating the value of a dog or a pig to a child. And let me tell you something. Again, she probably thinks she has a higher standard of morality than God does, and she is dreadfully wrong and dreadfully arrogant to think that her standard of morality is anywhere near uh, um, rational when she says that a dog is a pig is a boy. Now, these uh, Jesus then is saying, look, question number one, is there ever an obligation to act on the Sabbath? What if you have one sheep and it's and this sheep is in a pit? Are you going to try to save that sheep's life? If that's the only animal you got? As a matter of fact, he's going to tell us that there are some times when to fail to act is wrong. Um, I'm going to read you out of, out of uh, Mark chapter 3, which is, a, a, again, another gospel writer that is uh, giving this account. And listen to how Jesus puts the question there. He says, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? Now, what does he mean by that? What he's talking about is a common understanding in Jewish law, and by the way, it's also a common understanding in our law, and that is the duty to act. Um, for instance, let's just say that um, I am uh, driving along and I come upon an accident, all right, and no one has stopped, and this, is, uh, this has just happened, and I'm the first one on that accident scene. Now, I have some training in um, in first responder, I'm not I'm not very high up on that, but I am a first responder and I have training in CPR. Do I have an obligation to stop and try to help someone up to my skill level? I don't have, by the way, the right to try to act like a doctor or act like a nurse or even in a, a paramedic or even an EMT. But I do have not only the right to uh, help with my skill set but I have an obligation to do so. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying now, okay, you have, a, you have a sheep, it's in the pit on the Sabbath, do you not have an obligation to pull that sheep out? And wouldn't you do it if it's your only sheep? And then he says, now, how much of more value is a sheep, uh, is a man than a sheep? So would you, if you wouldn't rescue merely a sheep, do you not have an obligation? Do I not have not merely the, 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 the privilege of helping him, but do I not have an obligation because I can't help him? I can take care of that withered hand. That is what Jesus is saying. And the obvious conclusion is, yes, he has every not only every right, but the duty to help him since he can. Um, again, if, if you're going by a, a scene and, and, and someone is drowning, are you going to say, well, you know, uh, I, I, I'm not going to stop. It's my day off of work. Uh, is that is that is that the right response? No. There's a duty to act. We all we all have a have a conscience that would tell us that. Now it's interesting that um, when Jesus asked this question, now Matthew does not record it, but some of the other gospel writers do, that um, they didn't even answer him. They would not 
answer his question. And it, it, uh, the gospel writers express that Jesus looked around on these people with anger in his heart because of their hardness of heart and the wickedness that they were unwilling to even deal with this situation, even face the, the, the foolishness of their, own, of their own pride. So then Jesus applied his actions. They, they uh, wouldn't stand up for the man, but he would. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored as the other. Now, Jesus then steps in and helps this guy. He says, look, I, I have an obligation to do this, and I will. And he, and he does it. Now, what was the response of these religious leaders when Jesus healed that man on the Sabbath? Are they saying, well, we may not have done it ourselves, but hey, we've got to be glad for the guy. At least he's healed. Uh, no, that was not their response at all. Verse 14 tells us this. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. Matter of fact, Luke records about their reaction that these men were filled with rage. Their criticisms, by the way, are not uttered in front of Jesus because they couldn't have got away with it. He had blown away their argument. He had pointed out their hypocrisy in the fact that they would have saved an animal but here they are not caring about this human being. And so they couldn't, they couldn't criticize him in front of his face. Instead, you'll notice again, it says that they went out, which means they left the synagogue and started plotting to kill him for the crime of healing a man on the Sabbath. Mark adds the detail that the Pharisees consulted with the Herodians. By the way, that Herodians is a, a group that they normally wouldn't have gotten along with. Um, so why is that significant? So John MacArthur has the following description of the Herodians. This is a secular political party which took its name from Herod Antipas and was strong in its support for Rome and opposed the Pharisees on nearly every issue. So if you can imagine, well, we've kind of seen it actually this past week where you have people um, on both sides, Republican and Democrat, and they're coming together to agree on the fact that, hey, we got to do something about Ukraine. Uh, and and what's going on with with Putin and and I get that that makes all kinds of sense. Well, what's uniting these people on opposite ends of the political spectrum and religious spectrum is the fact that now they're all in agreement. Jesus of Nazareth has to go. Now, what do we conclude from this passage of scripture? Well, first of all, Satan often tries to turn God's blessings into curses, doesn't he? Here these guys are, the disciples, walking through the field, have the blessing of being able to have something to eat. They hadn't eaten evidently in a while. And now, all of a sudden, here's somebody to stand up and criticize them and tell them how wrong they are. And it was ridiculous. It was ridiculous criticism. And so watch out, because Satan will often try to take the day of worship and rest and turn it into one of conflict and hard-heartedness. And may I say to you that don't miss the blessing of taking um, a day off if you, at all possible. Now, again, some of you may be in the medical field. Maybe that's why you're listening to me. You're, you may have to travel with the test results from one hospital to another, and so you're on the road. And I get that. That's an important job, and you're doing it, and, and you need to do it. You can't, again, say, well, we're just going to stop all medical testing and get all testing results. We're going to wait until after Sunday, or if, if you're trying to observe the Sabbath, we're going to wait until after Saturday. No, we can't do that. So I get it that some of you can't, but but if you can't take um, a Sunday off 
um, and worship the Lord and be in church, I'd encourage you to do like you're doing, listening to a radio broadcast, uh, get a podcast, um, uh, take some time to worship the Lord, and also take a day of rest. Take a, a time, a good time period to get some rest and, and rebuild your body and your mind. There's nothing wrong with that. I think God uh, did that for a very, very good reason, obviously, that we all need that. Remember, the Sabbath was made for man. And so having a day off is a good thing. And I would encourage you to do that. Um, but also, uh, Satan tries to, to turn a blessing into curses by, by even taking the house of God where people should be coming to worship the Lord. And here it is, a place of hypocrisy, a place where where uh, the uh, where, when people should be worshiping the Lord, and here they are plotting as they leave it to go kill Jesus. And you say, can it be that bad? Well, yeah, it can. And um, I, I know that some of you have been offended. Uh, you've gone into places of worship, and you've seen just blatant evil. And uh, you're tempted to walk away and never come back. May I just say that uh, maybe you can't go back to that place. Maybe the gospel's not being preached. Maybe the wickedness is, is systemic because, quite frankly, they're not pleasing God. But Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 10 says, If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. What do I mean by that? Don't let the hypocrisy of some turn you away from the public worship of God. He has commanded that we do it. So find a place where you can worship God. They're, they're not going to be perfect either. As a matter of fact, a healthy church is going to be a church where you have some people that love the Lord and are serving Him, but you're also going to have people from all other spiritual spots. You know what I'm saying? Some are going to be, um, uh, probably you're going to have some fakes there because it, you always seem to have those. Satan sows them, Jesus told us, among the good. And then you'll also have some people that aren't saved yet that uh, maybe have some really bad habits. You, you have all kinds of different uh, people. But that's what it should be. The church is a hospital. It's a place where we come to worship God, yes, but to get help. So be careful about just uh, buying into this idea that, well, public worship is not going to be for me because there's too many hypocrites down there. Well, the reality is, is that you need to worship God publicly, and that's a command of the Lord and something that you ought to be doing. And find a place that um, at least is preaching the scriptures faithfully, and uh, where people are trying to go on with God, and yes, they're not all going to be faithful, they're not all going to be good, but that's that's what you should expect. That was the crowd that would be listening to Jesus at the moment we're talking about. Uh, let me give you a second thought that comes out of this passage. That is, Satan and his children love dead religion. And what is dead religion? Well, dead religion was really brought up in Matthew chapter 15, just a little bit later than this. And Jesus was talking to some of these same type of people, the, the uh, religious leaders who were in opposition to him. And he says this, Hypocrites, well did he, Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, This people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Now there's the first characteristic of, of dead religion. And that is pretending loyalty to God while rebelling against them. A hypocrite is an actor. And he calls them hypocrites. You're actors. You're drawing near to me with your mouth, but your heart is far from me. That's the second part about dead religion. Dead religion is saying good things without believing them. And a third part of dead religion, which is exactly what was going on in Jesus being criticized in chapter 12, he says in verse 9, And in vain they worship me, which means it's dead. It's not going to get anything done. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So man-made uh, and, and dead religion elevates man-made rules over God's word. 
And so this often leads to rules that further disobedient lead to further disobedience to the Lord that slander God's character and and actually hurt the people who try to follow them. So the disciples, what were they supposed to do? Walk through and just go on hungry? Rather than um, than just p- literally just plucking the grains off and putting them in there, you know, and eating them. I mean, come on, how are you going to call that work? But they did, and that's the characteristic of false religion. They they slander God's character, make it sound like the Sabbath is supposed to be some terrible thing, and instead of a blessing, a day off, and a time when you can worship God. Uh, a, a fourth, a third thing we learn from this account is that unsaved religious people are often very critical people. Matter of fact, those of you that may have been turned off by uh, very critical individuals. Now, let me let me just try to uh, differentiate here. If if you got angry because someone said, "Well, you know what? You shouldn't be doing drugs." Or you're wrong to sleep with your girlfriend. If you got mad at that, well, guess what? I'm sorry, pal, but you you you're mad for the wrong reason. That person told you the truth. But if you've run into the kind of person that just loves to be critical, just has that 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 uh, eye that looks at people and always finds fault, that person very possibly may not be a Christian him or herself. You actually may have walked out on God based upon a person who doesn't even know God, who's a, who's a fake. And so these religious leaders were very critical people. They didn't know the Lord. They, they, they could talk a good game. And Jesus, that's why he calls them hypocrites in chapter 15. A fourth thing we learn is that unsaved religious people are often unforgiving people. They're going to kill Jesus. They're not going to try to reconcile. They're not going to try to work on this. And if you run into a person who says, oh, I cannot forgive you, I just, well, let me say, if they're a Christian, they're not thinking square. And that can happen where a Christian gets upset and, and, and says something foolish. But the reality is that if anyone understands how much that he or she has been forgiven. If it, let me put it to myself. If I understand, get an inkling of how much God has forgiven me because he's forgiven me all a lifetime of sins that were dragging me into, into hell. That's what he's forgiven me for. Then how can I turn around and say to somebody else, I can't forgive you? I can't. I've been forgiven too much myself. There's a whole section. If you want to look up Matthew chapter 18, Verse 21 to the end of the chapter, you can read a parable about that very issue. So unsaved religious people are often unforgiving people. Be wary of the person who calls himself religious and is unforgiving. Number five, Jesus will help the needy who come to him no matter what it costs him. Jesus knew what was going to happen here. He could tell when when he healed that guy in the synagogue that the religious leaders were not going to be happy campers. He knows what's going on. But he healed the guy anyway. You know, he didn't just kind of, hey, I'll meet you five minutes after the service is done and we'll, we'll, we'll do something. He, he healed him. He helped him right then, no matter the cost. And he'll help you too. And you know, sometimes we get mad at Christ or we get mad at the Lord for saving people that we don't like. Maybe this person did a very wicked thing. Maybe it's a family member that we've just really has hurt us deeply. And now all of a sudden that person's talking about coming to Christ and their life does seem to really be changed. It's not just a, a, a you know, a, a mere profession. It seems like that person's really is different. And, and, and there are people sometimes in the family that are angry about that as if God is somehow wrong to forgive them. Again, you probably don't know Christ yourself if you don't understand his forgiveness. Jesus will help the needy who come to him no matter the cost. A sixth thing we learn from this is that it is the height 
of human arrogance to imagine yourself more moral than God. For these guys to try to to criticize Jesus for observing the Sabbath in the wrong way when Jesus created the Sabbath in the first place is ridiculous. When you think of it, it's amazing that any of us as humans would be so bold as to question God's honesty or his righteous character. Jesus had been demonstrated the truth of his claims to be God's son, and to question him as if he was some careless sinner is frankly not only insulting, but it is, it is again, just arrogant. Now, I'm not a, uh, a much of a golfer. I played a little bit. My dad and I used to play years ago, and, and then I, I, I went for probably 15 years about without playing. And, and uh, I, I picked it up a little bit with uh, my sons. Um, you know, they like to play, so I'll sometimes play with them and have a hard time, you know, even keeping up with them. But anyway, so I, I know very little about golf. Um, but let's just say that that you're one of those persons that really loves the game. I mean, you you study the game, you play the game, you you've got a very good handicap. I mean, you've, you you you're a good golfer yourself, and you know all the 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 news on golf, and you've been following it. And somehow you had a friend who had tickets to the Masters. Now, if, if those of you that don't know golf, the Masters tournament down in in Georgia is uh, probably the biggest tournament. Um, in the world as far as uh, prestigious. You have to have one uh, tournaments have a certain ranking even to be able to go there and so it's a pretty big deal. So here you are, you're, you're, a, you're a great fan of golfing and, uh, and, and someone gives you two tickets. Now you try every person because you want somebody else to go with you and enjoy this great event. So you try all of your cousins, your, your friends, even some of your enemies. I mean you try all kinds of people to, to find who would be willing to go down with you. You've got tickets, let's say, for Friday. It's a, it's a four-day tournament, so you got tickets for Friday. And uh, right on the second hole, you're going to see the tee shot, so uh, and you can go from there. So you you got you got these tickets, and, and you got to find somebody. Well, you can't find anybody until finally you give me a call. And, of course, wouldn't you know it, I accept it. I, I decide I'm going with you. So here I am. I'm, I'm going to the golf tournament. Uh, with you. And so I try to impress you with all that I know about golf on our way down, and which is very little. And uh, so we talk about golf and you tell me your stories and I try to tell you about uh, one or two holes that I actually maybe parred. And so we finally get down to the Masters and we get on the second tee and we're, we're standing there and we're watching. And who comes striding up to the tee um, and uh, is Tiger Woods. And, of course, those of you that know anything about golf know that Tiger Woods has been for oh, a couple decades now the most famous golfer on the planet. And uh, so he's going to play the Masters, and uh, and so he steps up, and he, of course, whacks a tee shot, and that thing just flies through the air hundreds of yards and lands but slightly in the, in the, in the rough, slightly outside the fairway, not much but a little bit. And then um, I got a gr- brilliant idea. And so I am right there on the front row of the second tee. And so I uh, just yelled directly to Tiger. And I say, hey, Tiger, um, I noticed your swing was a little bit off there. You know, I, I realized that when you, you know, you grip the club, if you use your index finger, wrap it around your pinky and, and keep your eye on the ball when you hit it, you know, I think you'll do better next time. Just wanted to let you know. Now, if you can imagine 
that would have to be one of the most uh, hilarious things Tiger Woods has ever heard on a golf course. That someone would try to be instructing him on the basics of the tee shot. But then, can you imagine, if you were there with me, how embarrassed you would be by the foolishness, by the foolishness of me thinking, as a guy who's hardly picked up a set of clubs and trying to ex- explain to a guy who's been playing literally since he could hardly walk and is the best pro probably of all time how to play the game of golf. Now, let me just say this. That's ridiculous. But let me tell you what's more ridiculous is to think that you or I are going to instruct God on the issues of morality. For you to think that somehow you're going to tell God who set up this whole universe and, and the morality system in this universe for you or I to think that we're going to tell God how to, how to conduct himself and how to be honest and how to, how to have the right kind of rules that are going to fit with what I think is right. That's absolutely ridiculous. That's worse than me trying to instruct Tiger Woods by far. I'll close with these verses. Romans chapter 11, verse 33 and 34. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? You or I are not needed to counsel God. So let me just tell you two things in closing. Number one, stop criticizing God. You don't need to forgive him. You don't need to, you don't need to straighten him out. You need to stop criticizing him. And number two, why don't you start imitating God? You'll have a hard enough time doing that one. Our Lord is an example in every regard of morality. Study his life and let's try to imitate him. May the Lord bless you. God tells us that he has good reasons behind all that he does and that our minds cannot figure out his thoughts and thus we are expected to trust him when we don't understand his purposes. Isaiah 50.10 states, Who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant? Who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. Thus we are called to cling to our God when we are in the dark. For some of you that's too difficult for you don't personally know God yet. However, others of you know what I'm saying, for you do have a personal relationship with God, and thus though you cannot understand God's plan, you know the Lord well enough to be able to hang on to your faith. If you would like some extra spiritual help like counseling, prayer, or some help with questions from the Bible, you can email us at help at CalkinsBaptistChurch.com. Calkins is spelled C-A-L-K-I-N-S. Again, that email address is help at CalkinsBaptistChurch.com. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening. Everlasting life and light, He frees.